0: Welcome back to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Knox, how are you doing today, sir? Yeah,
1: I'm doing well. I had a fun time this week. Uh, you know the pumpkin we carved? It's now, yes. it has been smashed. Oh my gosh. Did you smash it?
0: Yes. Oh, okay. So it wasn't like some delinquents came up no. to the house and smashed it. Okay. No,
1: we smashed it at the Newton... City Hall, they have this special program that instead of getting all the people to throw away their pumpkin and filling a landfill, they're going to smash them and then pom- uh, and, uh, compost them.
0: Compost them. Okay. Yes. See, I thought she was going to say something like smash them and then create some, I don't know, pumpkin pie or pumpkin cookies out of it cause, you know, that seems like a very Boston thing to do. We like yeah. get all the pumpkin in the city together and just smash it and make pumpkin baked goods or... Ooh, pumpkin spice. Yes, Derek loves his pumpkin spice. He, you uh, gave me these pumpkin spice pumpkin seeds not too long ago. They were really good.
1: Yes, I have more if you want them.
0: I probably will take those. <laughs> I'm a little bit ashamed to say how much I enjoyed those. They are a good source of protein, and those pumpkin seeds that Paul made last week also really nice. Yes, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a good week though, man. And also, I didn't apologize for this earlier, but I apologize for being musty. I didn't I didn't shower. I came pretty much straight from the dojo here, and I didn't want to be late. So, you know, apologies. Anyway, let us go ahead and get into the news for this week. I think the big one happened just last night. It was a letter that Governor Herbert wrote to President Trump. You got a chance to read that letter? I did read it. So, there was... I think it was the third uh, paragraph in that mm-hmm. letter that was that's really what stood out to me, and I think what was really the crux of why I enjoyed this letter so much. I'm just going to read it real quick. So there's the third paragraph in the letter. Utah's unique history informs our approach. I, I should probably back up and say real quick, this is a response to uh, President Donald Trump's executive order to be more involved in state and local governments' efforts or dealings with refugees and immigrants and stuff and this is all a fancy way of saying the president wants more power to basically get immigrants out of the country but governor herbert wrote back and this was in his third paragraph after his second paragraph which clarified that he will continue to work with you know immigrants and refugee populations He says, Utah's unique history informs our approach to refugees. Our state was founded by religious refugees fleeing persecution in the United States. Those experiences and hardships of our pioneer ancestors 170 years ago are still fresh in the minds of many Utahns. As a result, we empathize deeply with individuals and groups who have been forced from their homes, and we love giving them a new home and a new life. So that, that's the third paragraph right there. Really powerful stuff. What was your initial response to it, Derek?
1: Well, my initial response was to think about how there needs to be good people in the Republican Party. Yes. And Governor Herbert is a Republican, and he's a member of the church, right? I actually don't know. Um, I think he is. Okay, that I would make some he sense. Is. Maybe he's not, but okay. I, th- I thought he was. I'm going
0: to Google that ish right now.
1: And <laughs> <laughs> what I like about that is that that ne- there needs to be a moral witness of people within the Republican Party. He is Mormon, and um, and I think there's a sense of, of pride there in my in my people, even though I'm not from Utah. But there's a there's a sense of pride where we grafted our tradition onto the need that will, needs to be met. Yes, which is what the best of the Christian tradition has always done. Yes, and the best of what Jesus did as well. Definitely and he um governor herbert was a moral witness in the face of trump's uh, xenophobia and intolerance and fear mm. and and paved out what what a, what a christian witness should look like on this issue
0: definitely i thought um like it was definitely refreshing to hear a mormon say something like that because i i feel like all too often like something that really gets under my skin is how apathetic or hostile that Mormons in particular can be to people on the margins, especially immigrants and refugees, when not too long ago, like Governor Herbert literally says this in his letter, not too long ago, only 170 years ago, the pioneers fled religious persecution from the eastern United States. Like They didn't even leave another country. This happened right here in the country. They fled religious and I would argue racialized persecution and violence so that they could be safe. So, I, I would really hope that more Mormons take that tech when it comes to addressing not just refugees, but anybody who's persecuted for any reason, especially anybody on the margins, uh, you know, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community. It, we really should be more empathetic to people who are persecuted because of their identities, mm-hmm. because that's literally what Mormons, what happened to Mormons not too long ago
1: yeah and you hear this from some people saying well you know the church is so backwards and why are they always behind on every social issue and we're actually not behind on every so we're ahead on some we're ahead of the American people on issues like refugees uh and I think I think that's amazing yeah how how when we're actually led by the spirit through our prophets we can say some powerful thing words to those who are in power
0: definitely definitely so that happened in Utah this week, and it was a it's a pretty good thing. I will give Utah props. I will give Governor Herbert props for repping Mormons well that particular week. Derek, anything else you want to talk about that happened in the news this week? We can talk about Kanye. <laughs> uh, well, I got nothing for I got nothing for Kanye. I'm tired.
1: Yeah, I'm I tired. I just want to briefly mention Obama's uh. Where he calls out people who are calling out people. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. Obama's yeah. call out of call out culture. Yes, and this I've, got quite a. <laughs> this really made the rounds on on uh, social media this past week. And I
1: think the key to, to interpreting and applying what he said has to do with what the impact is. Like if you're doing it, if you're calling out someone just to make yourself feel l- like righteous in in how pure you are and how you caught someone and and how you know if it's just done out of a, a sense of hypocrisy then that's not good. If it's done out of a sense of look, I need to keep this space safe for people and that means I this can't go unaddressed, then you're doing the right thing. You're making right. safe the place safer for LGBTs or women or people of color yeah. or whatever thing that you're calling out. That needs to be named. If it's yeah. not named, what you will end up have, having is all of those other people who are more vulnerable will just leave the space. And right. And that's not what you
0: want. Right. We right. don't want those people to leave the space. I, I don't know who wrote this a week or two ago, but someone in essence said, if you welcome everybody or if everybody is allowed into a space, particularly making examples of Islamophobes and Muslims in the same space, then only the Islamophobes will come and stay in the space. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. Like it's not enough to it's not enough to just be welcoming to everybody so we have to have the courage to address when problematic behaviors are impeding people's ability to have peace or to have justice right. and experience love like that is an important part of
1: the equation for sure yeah and i think that shows how we can be a prophetic moral witness but we have to be grounded in our character and also grounded in the impact. If you miss mm-hmm. those two things, then you will do what President Obama said of just, you know, causing more of a problem and saying something hi- hypocritically.
0: Right. And uh, at the end of uh, Obama's statement there, he kind of hinted at what he would rather see. And that, yeah, there's a need for more diplomacy, but there's also a need, and there's also a need rather for general action. We can't stop. As simply calling out problematic behaviors. If we have power to do something more than that, we are obligated to do it. And Mm -hmm. I think I echoed this Mm -hmm. sentiment last week when we talked about, or two weeks ago maybe, when we talked about President Ballard and Elder Christofferson's visit to to New England. President Ballard talked about, or wanted to begin a new movement to to pray more. You know what I'm saying? And I expressed, a fear of being of people stopping the buck at prayer and not being willing to go out and do the do the necessary work of making those prayers or making the things they're praying for come to pass. I would simply like to see more people who are in a position to do something actually do things. I see a lot of uh I think this is most prominent with you know white liberals on social media. They might call they might call out racism, you know, on the internet, but if somebody talks about the priesthood ban in church—they're silent. You know what I'm saying? I never want to be the angry black guy in Sunday school or elders' quorum. I really want people to be able to step up and address that as a problem in real time, and not just acknowledge that it's a problem when you know there's no consequences. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, and I think there's a uh, there's a uh, there's a, an unfortunate side effect to this. Purity culture or this call out culture in that some people who are on the right side mm-hmm. Are might be afraid of speaking out because it won't be 100% perfect Right my people may disagree about this right there might be LGBT people who disagree But I would rather have someone who's straight Speak out and have it be 95% right uh-huh. than to be silent yeah because to make to make me do all the advocacy that just doesn't look right. It's not going to have the same impact. But if someone steps up and says something, even if it's only ninety five percent right, it does more good, and then I can step in to help with that other five, mm-hmm. and we can we can work with that. Right. I think silence is much worse than than um than bigotry, or much worse than making uh, because. Once you get that conversation out there, once you register some dissent, then you change the whole room. You make it safer to have the conversation to begin with. Yeah. And I don't think it has to be exactly perfect to
0: start. It doesn't. It's also exhausting if you're the one doing it all the time. You know what I'm saying? Right. I don't want to be the person who has to say everything all the time just because you know, the white folks in the room are scared of being wrong or whatever. Yeah. But you're you're totally right about that, Derek. I, I agree a hundred percent. I'd much rather someone say something than nothing at all if they are ninety five percent on the right side of it.
1: And that's how I feel about speaking out about women's issues because I can't speak for women, right? Uh uh-huh. but I want to speak what I what I can and even if it's not exactly 100% right, and also knowing that not all women agree on right, it, not all right. feminist women agree on everything, mm-hmm. so I can't, you know, it's hard to know exactly what the 100% correct thing to say is, but to to say something rather than nothing, I think has an impact, because if the you only hear it from women, that's not gonna have the same resonance among the among the community. Totally,
0: and it's also, like if you don't hear it from women, if you hear it from men instead, that will still touch a certain population that it wouldn't touch before, right, you know what I'm saying? Right. So not to say that allyship isn't necessary or allyship is going to be less potent in every scenario, but you know, the situation, everything is situational, I guess is something I want to say. Right. So to put a button on it, I, I would think the takeaway from that Obama quote this week is that both diplomacy and a healthy dose of advocacy or rebelliousness or calling out is, is necessary. We, we need both. Mm-hmm. We need, we need both. both.
1: And our movement is stronger with both than with either one by itself. Yes, that's a much better way to say it. Thank you, Derek.
0: If there's no other news, would you be cool going to the Come Follow Me?
1: Sure, let's do that.
0: Excellent. I'm not gonna say anything until we get to Hebrews 5. So first okay. of all, Derek, let's just start with, set the stage for what Hebrews is, because this doesn't seem like the standard epistle.
1: Yeah, it's not really structured like an epistle with except uh, some some greetings at the end. It reads more like a sermon a long treatise Historically some people thought it was by Paul, but the text actually doesn't say that it was by Paul Okay like All of the other letters attributed to Paul in the New Testament actually start out saying, you know, Paul But this does is is officially anonymous So we're not at all bound to believe it's by Paul according to the text itself Okay and most scholars think that the style is different that the some of the theology and emphasis is different, and so we don't know who who wrote it uh, but Paul wrote it to some to some group of Christians perhaps at Rome because he says those from Italy greet you okay at the in the in the concluding greetings but he uh but the author is writing to a community that seems to be wrestling with the with the idea of sort of being called back to some type of Judaism because most of the thrust of the the argument is that Jesus is superior to all these other things. Right. Right. And that looks like there must be wrestling with some type of people who are either are wanting to, to go back to a more Law of Moses type spirituality or people who are wanting to abandon Jesus altogether. Now that's familiar actually because we encounter Paul
0: encountering this very thing for like... I feel like almost all the epistles that we've read through previously, Paul is encountering either some super apostles or some people who were Jewish at one point who are really right. trying to hold on mm-hmm. to, you know, parts of the Mosaic law. What What's distinctive about this?
1: You mean compared to Paul?
0: Well, or, compared to the rest of the epistles, because this doesn't seem like anything new. You know what I'm saying?
1: I think that that part of what, there wasn't an immediate incident-like circumcision yeah. that's going on here in, okay. in Hebrews. It's more of, is there room for Jesus at all to begin with? Whereas in the Paul, it was like, oh, you can follow Jesus, but you have to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. Alrighty. And I think the, the question of Jesus is really central to what's going on in Hebrews. Okay. And the other thing, the, the, the way that... Hebrews talks about sacrifices is, is kind of different than the way Paul talks about the crucifixion and resurrection. Paul makes a big deal about the resurrection. The The letter to the Hebrews mentions it, but doesn't actually treat it as a central theological theme the way Paul does. Uh, the way that the author of Hebrews uses the Hebrew Bible is also quite different than the way Paul does. They They quote different things and use them in different ways. So there's there's reasons to believe that that this is not by Paul, but that actually gives us an extra witness into, oh, look, here's something that the first century church was wrestling with. And here's another witness coming from a different angle and a different perspective that can help answer different questions than what Paul does.
2: Mm,
0: Okay.
1: So that's the sort of historical background. We don't know much else about the community or what problems they were facing. Lovely. Well, unfortunate. but Thank you for sharing, Derek. So what, what are some of the
0: uh, bigger theological points you want to pull out based on the Come Follow Me uh, study?
1: Yeah, so we, we're covering Hebrews chapters 1 through 6 today. Thank
0: you, Derek. Sorry. <laughs> Hebrews 1 through 6. Yes. I should do a better job of that. I'm so sorry.
1: And the first thing I want to do is point out the really brilliant first, uh, first three verses. First three verses. Okay. And I'm going to also be reading from the Tom Wayment Translation a long time ago god spoke to our fathers by the prophets in many and various ways in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he established as heir of all things through whom he created the world the Son is the radiance of his glory and the character of his essence and he supports all things through the word of his power after he made purification for sins he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high and then verse four by this, he became far greater than the angels, just as he inherited a name that is greater than theirs. One thing that I notice about this is th- here you get the, th- the he- theme of Hebrews already, the superiority of Jesus over angels, over prophets, over basically everything. Mm-hmm. This word here, um, I think the King James says something like that Jesus is the express image of the yes. Father that word there is is character in greek which really literally is the imprint of a of a die or a stamp or a seal onto metal or wax I that see. you have the exact image and imprint of the the die or stamp okay. or seal if, when you're stamping a coin or when you're sealing wax you leave an exact imprint and that's the word here saying you know if we want to know what god is like we look at what jesus is like mm. And that tells us what God is like. Mm. And I think that's powerful here because this impacts how we approach prophets, right? Because when we look at it, Jesus is superior to the prophets. There's no way way around it. The author to the Hebrews is saying, look, God spoke many times by prophets, but now you've got the definitive revelation, self-revelation of God in the person of of jesus and i think everything that uh let me just skip ahead to to hebrews chapter three hebrews three hebrews three we're basically uh, so in chapters one and two the author talks about how jesus is superior to angels which actually is a profound statement um if if jesus is superior to angels then of course he's superior to every man including Prophets right Right, And then we go into Chapter 3 where Jesus is superior to Moses mm-hmm. Now we wouldn't want to take this in an anti-Jewish Way right right but we want To look at see what what's going on In context and saying look Moses was just a human Just someone who was a created being Someone uh, But Jesus is, is More important here's what it Says in verse 3 uh, uh, Chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 therefore holy brothers and sisters partners in the heavenly calling consider the apostle and high priest whom we confess jesus who is faithful to him who appointed him just as moses was faithful in all of god's house for jesus was counted worthy of more glory than moses like a builder who has much more honor than the house itself for every house is built by someone but god is the builder of all things so jesus as creator of the of the world's is superior to Moses. That should stop any comparison between Moses or other prophets and Jesus. Okay. And I think that gives us hope because prophets are created beings who are imperfect humans. They have a particular calling, right, and a particular responsibility. But they don't have any more access to God than we do. They just have a wider responsibility. Got you. So uh, that doesn't mean they're always right. Just like I'm not always right when I'm inspired in my calling. But Jesus is basically the where everything stops. Mm. And I think that, that's an important thing to bring out. And I love the fact that the author here calls him Jesus, an apostle. We're not used to seeing Jesus as an apostle, but I think calling him an apostle really centralizes his authority and contextualizes the authority of the other apostles, mm. right? Okay. Because the apostles don't have anything that Jesus doesn't have. He's an apostle too, Um. Do you see where I'm going with all this? I believe so. That there's, that there's and I think every th- if you a- apply the author's logic around Moses and the prophets that came before Jesus, it all applies to the prophets that come after Jesus. That none of them are the definitive revelation, the self-revelation of God, the exact imprint, the character, the image of God mm-hmm. as a, as the son of God, right? So all this argument around prophets prior to Jesus applies to prophets after Jesus as well and so I still think we're we're retained we retain the centrality of Christ I just want to add one more detail from from chapter two because people will say well you know they had access to Jesus in the flesh but now we don't so now we're dependent on the prophets I'm like no because we have direct access to Christ even now and furthermore, my evidence in chapter two verse uh what is it, three. The author says it was first declared by the Lord and then proclaimed to us by those who heard him. So basically the author of Hebrews admits that he wasn't even an eyewitness of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He heard it secondhand through through other witnesses. So even he didn't have direct access to Christ, but still can claim Christ as the central self-revelation of god the ultimate authority that is superior to all prophets before and after and i think we can we can rest in that knowing that we may not have personal direct access to jesus in the flesh uh, but neither did this author so we're in the same boat we can still say christ is the definitive revelation of god and anything else that conflicts with christ is not worthy of christ's name ah that's great so quick tangent this author didn't see Christ. We know Paul
0: did. Like, Jesus appeared to Paul, did he not? Right. So we all but know that...
1: Right. Yeah, that's one of the many contradictions... Well, not contradictions, but many one of the many differences between what Paul says. Paul talks about how he saw Christ. Right. And uses that as a central, central part of his argument mm. many times, and this author does not.
0: Does not at all. Like, admits he's a second-hand witness, second-hand witness of Jesus. So, I, okay. So I was under the impression that there was still some doubt as to whether or not this was Paul, but
1: essentially no, no, no academic scholars of the new Testament, uh, accept this was, was by Paul. It doesn't even claim that it's by Paul. And the, the only reason, um, people think it's by Paul is based on a, a, a very late tradition. Mm, got it. That we're not bound by as Latter-day Saints. Now there are some highly conservative Christians that will say, well, because it says in the King James version, the the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews well, that's what it says, but but that's not part of our our um doctrine. Right.
0: Believing in the Bible as far as it is translated correctly. Yeah. Nice little asterisk moment. All right. Cool, Derek. A- anything else you wanted to bring up in uh Hebrews 1 through 6? Nope. I'm I'm curi- I want to hear what you say about Hebrews 5. So in David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell talks a lot about how people's perceived disadvantages have enabled them to do extraordinary things. He he talks, for example, about a lawyer with dys- dyslexia and how his inability to read well had quickened his listening abilities as well as his, his ability to read people. And this enabled him to be a great law student and a great litigator. Like he'd be sitting in lecture halls, not taking notes like the rest of his classmates. He'd just be listening intently. And he caught a lot more than his classmates did consequently. But by that same token, Malcolm Gladwell admits that he asked this guy if he'd wish dyslexia on his children. And he said, no, I would never wish dyslexia on my children. So, but, but the point is, one of his greatest skills that this lawyer learned was learned through his suffering was learned through his perceived disadvantage or disability some would call it then uh, james cone the the book i'm reading there in black theology of liberation kind of takes it a step further by talking how much talking about how much of an active role jesus christ plays in the black community precisely because jesus christ's message and his gospel is central to the plight of the black body mm-hmm specifically because of their oppression in fact one thing one thing that uh, james cone highlights early on in in the in his book is talking about how jesus christ very covenant with the children of israel is tied directly to their oppression similarly jesus christ's message and his thrust for justice and love and peace for all people is not only, like black people's thrust for that stuff is not only consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This all came about because I read one verse or one set of verses in uh, Hebrews five. I believe this is seven through, eight through nine, sorry, in the book of Hebrews five. I'm just gonna read those verses real quick. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So we learn Christ and we come to love Christ because it is in our, and this is what the way I read it into all communities, all Christian communities of marginalized peoples. We learn Christ and come to love Christ because it is in our oppression that we have come to know him, the thrust for all those things, all those positive things that would liberate us, but primarily liberation is consistent with the gospel and mission of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have a front row seat to Jesus Christ, I feel like. Jesus Christ is very much an active part of our worship, not some uh, abstract concept that some other folks might play a philosopher's game with when it comes to what Jesus taught or what he meant. He's very much an active part. So I, I feel like Jesus learned through suffering, and, you know, that is... Taken a little bit out of context, but Jesus Christ has basically suffered everything so he could be what is in essence the perfect empath, the perfect person to run to and serve everybody who would ever be on this planet. That was Jesus Christ's strength. He suffered everything. He suffered every privation, every disadvantage, lost every privilege so that he would know how to help people that would be plagued by those very things. Mm -hmm. So this is something... This is something I feel like we learned broadly because of this verse, but I also wanted to take a moment to apply it to every community that has faced some kind of privation because I feel like it is in this that communities on the margins can really claim space for themselves, can really claim the ability to know Jesus more intimately because they have to deal with these privations,
1: yeah, and that gets to 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 one thing that a lot of people don't bring out, especially concerning the LGBT community and the church. Okay. One of the challenges I I see is even, I think, a lot of well-meaning leaders and members, instead of like trying to keep LGBTs in the church and making them conform to something that they don't fit and never will, they'll just basically dismiss them and say, hey, go your way, you can leave the church, you can have a really good life, Outside the church, you can marry the person of your choice. You can basically have everything. I'm like, that's actually not liberation. It's not, no. To say, and I get where they're coming from because they're trying to say, oh, look, I admit that there's no place for you in the church and you'll be happier outside of it. That doesn't actually fix the problem of why my people aren't flourishing in the church as much as we would if we were fully included. And it's not of Christ either yeah to say and I think that was the that might have been behind a little bit behind the rhetoric of of President Oaks's recent talk where he started talking about the different degrees of glory and he's like he basically admits that look why don't you go have this particular life in this world and you'll get a degree of glory in the next and it'll all work out somehow and rather than saying wait a minute let's take a step back and and make room for you in the church they're like yeah, you're going to be fine in this life and the next, just not in the church. I'm right. Like, wow, that actually is a de- deterioration to, to the vision of Joseph Smith, mm-hmm. w- one that radically wants to include everyone, including dead people. Yeah. And right now yeah. it looks like there's there's more of a place for dead people in the church than my people, mm-hmm. which is which it can be really tragic. Definitely. But yeah, I, I just don't like this idea of, of go your merry way and have a good life outside the church. That's not, what. Well, that's not right. Right. As even you said, though, it's not even liberation. though it's coming from a standpoint of not wanting my people to suffer, and and allowing us to have access to certain things, that um, is still
0: a privilege you lose. Yeah. Privilege of fellowship like, with Christ.
1: Why do you think that 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 that's what I want to hear? I I want to hear people saying, "Look, we need to to reach out, to have to have more LGBT converts." There's no organized. Uh, as far as I know there's no organized Missionary resources For LGBTs Like they move heaven and earth to translate Materials And manuals into all the Languages of the earth but they don't Translate them into the what I'm going to call The language of my people Something that we can actually hear And something that resonates with us
0: Yeah yeah.
1: And I think that doesn't Display love for us Hmm I wish there would be more efforts to bring LGBT people into the church and then make the church the the type of place that will welcome us.
0: Definitely, definitely. Who gave that church, or sorry, that talk and conference not too long ago, he seemed to be worried very much about people leaving the church, and I think it was you who highlighted why isn't he more worried about this church being the kind of place that people feel like they need to leave than he is about people actually leaving the church.
1: Yeah, I don't remember which talk that was.
0: And I don't remember the context. I should have been ready to discuss that. I don't even remember who gave the talk. It might have been Elder Stevenson, but I'm not entirely sure.
1: Yeah, I don't remember.
0: Okay, no worries then. Um, Anything else about that particular set of verses you want to bring up?
1: It gets back into people say, well, it's okay to have 12 white people. 12 white men as apostles, um, which thankfully we don't have 12. Right. Right. We got don't. 10. <laughs> <laughs> um, w- well, we have a white Brazilian and we have Elder Gong. Right. Right. But, and, uh, but I'm like, if you don't see, if you don't see where the pain is, if you don't come from a Christ formed life that knows suffering personally, you can't you can't you can't at all get close to Christ in the way you minister mm-hmm. and I think that's why we need to have all pe- all voices at the table um and we don't have any l g b t people who are out in in decision making capacity in this church maybe you might have a few um low level ward callings or state callings somewhere but but it would be I I don't even know of any out gay stake presidents or or bishops, Mm. even on that level. I know some closeted ones. Um, Of course, I'm not going to tell you who they are. (laughs) Right. But I don't know any out gay um, people with actual decision-making authority in this church. Yeah. Or people that can influence the message or speak what God has on their mind. So that gets back to right here. The whole point of of why Jesus is able to do what he is is because he has suffered and then was made perfect. And I think that's how, why we need, and just like what you said about James Cone and the particular spiritual journey of black people and what black people have to offer the church. That is an amazing treasure that we're missing out on. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I'm thankful for Elder Johnson.
2: Woo!
0: Still get chills thinking about that talk, man. Not nothing groundbreaking, nothing new, but yo, it's so different, and so, something else that and the I, way he said it, and the way he said it, yeah, yes, definitely, definitely. I, I do want to speak cautiously about what Jesus had to experience because one could argue that Jesus, in effect, embraced every identity that would be marginalized. He embraced the identity of the Muslim. He embraced the idea of the LGBT. The, identity of the LGBTQ person he embraced the identity of the black person of the woman in a misogynistic society he embraced all of that and he knows the pain of all of Mm. that like that to me is an incredibly incredibly profound condescension to be able to experience all that to the point of being able to minister to the people who would experience that like that's just I mean that sets a model for in effect, what we should all be striving for, that kind of perfect empathy. Now, obviously, it's kind of impossible. I can never understand what it's going to be like for someone like you to be in the church, but I do have a responsibility to minister to others the way that you would minister to them because you have experienced that. That speaks to the power of having people like you in decision-making positions. Mm -hmm. It speaks to the power of having women and people of color and people who otherwise sit on the margins of society in positions of power and decision-making positions. So I just wanted to bring that out, that the idea that Christ had experienced all that or the possibility that he may have experienced all that is pretty incredible.
1: Yes, at least we can say that take him as a symbol of all those experiences.
0: A symbol of all those experiences. Yes. And therefore... And, and model, find
1: those experiences on the
0: cross. Find those experiences on the cross and put those experiences in the church. Put them in leadership.
1: Yeah, and I think one one thing I do want to say, and this is going to be a teaser for next week, so, so that if you... Listen to this one. You're going to be very eager to listen to next week. (laughs) Next week, I'm going to talk about how Melchizedek is a queer hero and a queer figure. Well, all right then. According to the book of Hebrews. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to that. Other than that, I don't have anything uh, more about Hebrews for this week.
0: Okay. I got some questions then because we got a little bit of time. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about this. This is something that also stood out to me and hit me a little different. I think this is in Hebrews 6. Well, there's two things in Hebrew six, and you know we don't have to talk about both of these things, but Hebrew six four through six that had some uh, interesting language in there, particularly verse uh, verse. Uh, oh, where is it? Six. It talks about crucifying the Son of God afresh and putting Him to open shame. Now, in the context of these verses, it seems to be talking about people who were partakers of the Holy Ghost and then, in essence, denied it after they had felt it and in doing so, crucified God afresh. Is there something else that you read when you read this passage? Because this is just language I'm not accustomed to reading in the scriptures, and I just wanted to see if you had anything additional to say about that.
1: Well, Hebrews... Several places has these little warnings in it okay, and it's and it's really hard to interpret these warnings I don't think they have a lot of practical value in terms of figuring out Oh, and have I fallen enough to never be reclaimed or not, but what it does do is highlight the centrality of Jesus to say look Jesus is such a treasure That losing him is this really awful thing right and that's the that's the sort of impact that I get from it now theologians have wrestled w- with this for years and years in protestantism as to whether you can lose your faith or not and or whether you can uh, be restored after you've lost your faith or not and i don't actually know what uh what in context the author meant other than to to really reaff- reaffirm the centrality of christ in this and that actually ends up being a positive thing but, but yeah these warning texts in hebrews are pretty challenging to wrestle with um and i just want to be very cautious and humble because some people will, will basically say well they'll take this text to say well if you once you've actually gotten the gift and you've abandoned it you have no hope again which to me that's not that's not actually our doctrine right there's 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 going to be accountability and responsibility But uh, my view is that everyone's doing the best they can with what they have. And Mm -hmm. if they get more and better information, then they'll have a chance. Like, I don't think that heaven is closed from the inside. Mm -hmm. It's only closed from the outside if people refuse to go in. Got it. I don't think God's going to play gotcha. So that's not how I interpret this text. Okay.
0: Gotcha. Thank you for sharing. And uh, this other curious uh, wording in Hebrews 6, verse 1. Like, I see the JST. But I was hoping that maybe you from a theologian's perspective could perhaps either, you know, read that Wayman translation or perhaps there's a Greek translation because this is just, it's just worded weird. I'm just going to read it here. It says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. It just seems like a very counterintuitive thing to suggest that we go on to perfection after leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Can you can you say anything about that?
1: Yes. So um the Greek word is aphentus. It's a participle which comes from me meaning to to leave behind or to to move on from or to to go to the next step. It doesn't mean leave in the sense of abandon, right? So what he's basically saying this this is moving on in the outline of the letter, right? It's not moving on. Where so it's I more think?
0: like it's more like a it, next step. Yeah, not it's basically ne- okay. said.
1: Yeah, I've talked about these things in chapters one through five, and now we're going to move on to the next thing. I see. And the problem here is that Joseph Smith, when he was doing the JFT, found something objectionable objectionable with this uh, the the particular um unfortunate translation of of the KJV of leaving the of leaving the the principles of Jesus Christ which is uh-huh. that's not what it means um and so the JST changes it to not leaving them but i think that's just because overly
0: simplistic
1: <laughs> like i i don't like that JST at all like it just doesn't seem
0: i don't know it just didn't seem it seemed like the easy way out i guess
1: yeah and we have to remember that the JST is a work that's done by study and by faith. It's not. Uh-huh. It's not something that plopped down from heaven, perfect. You know. Right. Um, Jesus, uh, Joseph Smith never actually published this in his life. He never presented it publicly, um, with exceptions of like the, the uh, Moses. Um, Uh, But, but, but he never finalized his translation and offered it to the public. It was never canonized in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. He worked on it. uh, He had a manuscript. The reorganized had it. Um, And so for years, it was never canonical in our church. It was basically an experiment where he was toying around with things and trying to figure things out. And, um. and this was was a process that was done by study and by faith. There were some actual revelations in the text of the JST, like these long interpolations. Others, he's looking through and sees a problem in the King James version, which is not at all a problem in the Greek, mm-hmm. a problem in the in just the how the coincidence of the King James version. And then he fixes it, and he does this a number of times throughout the JST. And I don't I don't think we need to take those things too seriously and, uh-huh. and and make a big deal out of them that's just what he was doing in his in in the early stages of his career and i should also say that it's now known that he used sources when he was looking at when he was revising the jst especially adam clark's commentary on the entire bible oh. there are minor cases where it's very clear that he he consulted adam clark's commentary and used that to fix the king james Gotcha. None of these longer revelatory passages are dependent on Adam Clark, but some of these minor little corrections here and there. Um, Adam Clark was a very early Methodist uh, commentator, um, very powerful. His, his commentary was one of the most influential commentaries in, early, in the early um, early 1820s America. Hmm. very well known and this is this is I don't think this is at all cheating or that or that Joseph is not a prophet because it, we know that you have to study out of the best books he's right. trying to piece together by by study and by faith doing his own research plus his inspiration and marrying the two that's exactly what we have to do when we make a business decision or make a decision about who we're going to marry. Yeah, that is not at all inconsistent with faith, and it's not at all cheating. It's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But I think that for some people in the church, the JST has this halo around it. Right. That it's somehow sacredly plopped down from Mount Sinai, and I'm right, like, no, right. no, this is this is a work in progress. Um, line upon line, he's trying to figure some stuff out. And he's doing the best he can with the English text of the King James. Mm.
0: Gotcha. Well, okay. I didn't know that about the uh, King James. I didn't know that it uh, leaned so heavily on uh, the Adam Clark commentary. Like, You mean the Joseph
1: Smith translation? Correct, please. correct. Yeah. Like, I
0: didn't know any of that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I Thank you. Bless our listeners with some new knowledge today as well. Those were the last of my questions with regard to awesome. Hebrews. <laughs> so with that, let's go ahead and transition into the prayer role. I will go first because I don't think I have as much to say as you do about yours, so I'm just going to briefly mention something that happened this week on the Church of Jesus Christ Instagram page. By the way, that is how you find LDS.org's Instagram. It's no longer the LDS.org Instagram. It's the Church of Jesus Christ Instagram. So what happened this week is they post this lovely picture and story of this black woman in the church where... What, what, what was in the picture wasn't so important, but what the caption was was very important. And in essence, the, the, this, this black woman talked about her faith crisis that was brought about by how people justified the priesthood ban and temple restrictions. It, and for those of you who are new to the show or don't know this about the church, that was basically a set of prohibitions on black members, on members of African descent, really. So people went in the comments section, not everybody, but enough people went into the comments section to justify the priesthood and temple restrictions. Now, December of 2013, the church released an essay effectively denouncing all justifications of the priesthood ban. And though the church hasn't explicitly named racism as the cause of the ban, it is the reason that currently has the most evidence and overwhelmingly so. So just let this serve as a reminder that it is far more helpful to to own the church's racist past than to try to justify it with now repudiated explanations. So I just want to briefly pray, offer up prayer for those doing the latter, that they may find comfort in the discomfort of an imperfect church. I, I just feel like people feel like they have to say so much to justify this ban because they can't stand the idea of being part of an imperfect church, but... I think one of the most liberating things ever is to get comfortable with that actually.
1: Yeah, how would you respond if someone said, "How can you be comfortable in a church that's homophobic or transphobic?"
2: I really don't think that's anything deep. I I'm I'm comfortable in a homophobic or transphobic church because I'm comfortable fighting those things. You see the the assumption that question is making is that my membership in the church is somehow an endorsement of and perhaps even informed by the church's policies and that's simply not the case I'm a member of the church because that's what having a testimony of the restored gospel requires of me And, and because I believe that homophobia is doctrinally homophobia and transphobia are doctrinally and morally wrong I believe I must fight against those things. So therefore, I'm comfortable where I am because I'm comfortable fighting those things. That is what is required.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, man.
0: Yeah. So
1: get the, get get get
0: get your lives people in the comment section just. Get comfortable with the fact that your church was racist in the past and still has some problems to work on now. It is okay. Derek, who you got?
1: well i'm going to so there was this uh in utah i don't even remember all the details but there was this uh 12 year old kid who decided it would be a good idea to dress up as hitler in part of their halloween oh yeah I guess, the parade, parade. <laughs> and okay well yeah it's one thing for a 12 year old to make this decision but then apparently where are the parents Where's the teacher? Where's the principal? Yeah. Because you might think you're doing this kid a favor, but you're actually making this place a lot less safe for any um Jewish students, any students of color, any any queer students, anyone who has any connection to any of the identities pursued by the Nazis. Yeah. You've got a problem there. You you're you're making room for this one person and they're creativity but you're making the place instantly so much less safe for all these other people and and it's the responsibility of the teacher and the principal to protect everyone Yeah. as an educator I have to make so many split second decisions all day and, and a lot of those have to do with what's going to help people feel safe how can I make this an environment where I'm supporting all learners right and so I'm just really I don't know what was, what was up with with the apparently the principal and one of the teachers they're now suspended with pay uh, yeah <laughs> but we'll see what we'll see what what's going on here i that's it, just there's just so many ways this people should know better they really should i mean i don't know if i should say that a 12-year-old kid should know better i mean he should but right th- but there's that's why there's adults right we don't have right. school <laughs> with just 12-year-olds there's a reason there there's adults mhm um and uh it's just it's just really uh, really troubling that this 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 can go on and I saw people commenting saying well we don't have racism in Utah. I'm like uh <laughs> what? And you what? know it was a, you know it was a white person saying we don't have racism of in Utah. Of course it
0: was. Of course it was. Wow. Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. So
0: I'm sure there was people supporting this young man like supporting his creativity or his right to wear what he wanted for halloween like it was a halloween parade it was a joke it wasn't like but like that particular costume obviously is hostile towards i mean you already said it towards a lot of people and you know that needs to be that needs to be checked and i'm just like what what were the principal think what was the principal thinking what was the teacher thinking what was that boy's parents thinking letting him go out dressing like that like that had people had to know that wasn't a good look like what made them think let's dress our kid up like hitler and send him to school like what made them think that was okay i i really don't know i really don't know and
1: you know white privilege means that these people in the end are going to say look at this wonderful teaching moment we had and i'm such a better person now that i messed up and learned from it and so they're going to actually come out ahead mm. in potentially right or Uh, That's the sort of resilience and the arrogance of white supremacy and Mm. white privilege is that even when white people mess up, well, we can fix it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And make it turn out for the best, for our best. Man.
0: 2019, 2019 in the year of our Lord. We we have this happening. Anyway, if you got nothing else on that, Derek, uh, that's it. Okay, cool. Then let's just go over a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, Derek, where can folks find us?
1: You can find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Share this with your friends. Let them know what you like about us. Um, Give us feedback. Give us questions that you want us to answer. Um, Is our survey still live? Yes, survey is still live. So you can fill out our survey. You can get in touch with us. Where can they find the survey? They can find it pinned to our Twitter and our Facebook, right? That is correct. And is it on the website also?
0: I have not figured out how to get it on the website yet. (laughs) I'm very new at this web developing thing, so I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll figure it out. Well, yeah,
1: thank you you so much, all of you who uh, listen to us regularly and support us. We're doing this for you, so thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.